also say a toe to so. You know what? A toe to so. A fucking a toe to so. kick off with uh, a fiery speech from Stephen Harper. You guys ready? Here goes. Oh yeah. I'm ready to be fired up. Let's get, I've I've been I've been a little tired recently. Let's get fired up. Let's uh let's get excited. Let's let's get it started in here. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get the original lyrics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we will. All right. Here goes. That 10-point plan, your 10-point plan is the future. It is the future the world wants. It is the future that Iranians need. And it is the future that you have long fought for. So I say to you again, my friends, do not give up hope. Do not in any way relent your struggle. Underneath the extremism and perversion of the Ayatollah's regime is a great country, a great culture, a great faith, a great civilization yearning to be free. And that is what the world, everyone in the world wants in Iran. Today, I am joined here as I was last year by many Canadians. I am joined by both those who supported my government and those who opposed my government, but who are united behind your dreams of a new and better Iran. And these Canadians are just a small sample of the millions of people of goodwill and fortitude in Canada, and the billions of similar people around the world who share your aspirations for a new Iran. An Iran governed not by the hatreds of the past or the regime's nuclear apocalyptic vision of the future, (laughs) but an Iran led forward by the needs of its people and rooted in the best of its culture and history. And that new Iran is coming and it will be an Iran that stands freely and proudly among the nations of the world. It will be an Iran that your efforts have inspired. So keep up the fight. Hazar, Hazar, Hazar. Man, the new Dr. Bronner's labels got really weird. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Ever since his kids took over the company, it's become much more foreign policy focused. <laughs> so this is this is an uncharacteristically uh, fucking fired up speech for uh, for uh, noted damp, bloodless ghoul Stephen Harper. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, he's pretty keyed up here. So so was this speech? Do you guys think that he made this speech in Ottawa? Did he make it at the CBC? headquarters in uh in toronto was he was he at the calgary stampede orating in front of a stadium hmm. uh, i, I have mean, a couple ideas but i think i think i think you know dan i do <laughs> cape breton island <laughs> yeah this uh the speech was given at the Ashraf 3 compound just outside of Tirana, which is the Albanian headquarters of the people's mujahideen of iran or mek um so today on the bottleman uh, we're joined by Seamus Malik Vizali to talk about the history of yet another one of this country's problematic faves. And uh, to answer the question, why does a specific group of neoconservatives love going to Albania once a year? Um, Seamus, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing just wonderful. Uh, and I'm glad to be back on this, uh, this podcast. Um, you're, you're in the middle of a move right now. I am. Uh, I'm moving currently to France, uh, which is curiously another one of the headquarters of the MEK, though I'm not affiliated in any way, shape or form with the organization. I want to make that clear. Uh, we'll see about that. Yeah, well, you're, you're, look, look, there's two big organizations in France. There's the MEK and l'Académie Gaulier. Uh, you could either become an MEK guy or a clown. Those are the two main <laughs> things. 
<laughs> the clown and Seamus is going to clown college, damn it. Some people call it Seance Po, but I know it is clown college. Do you think Do you think there's more traffic in the uh, clown college to MBK pipeline or the MBK to clown college pipeline in France? <laughs> I think it needs to be studied further. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I actually, I read a really interesting uh, uh, thread by some anarchists about the uh, Academy Goliath to MEK pipeline. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I uh, completely destroyed my mind uh, looking up Crime Think the other, uh, the other day, which uh, we, need, we need to do an episode on, uh, on crust punks in Canada. Mm-hmm. But, um, but be- before we get into the, the meat of the, of the turkey leg of the episode, um, I wanted to take a brief detour into uh, breaking Iran uh, non-news, maybe? News, non-news? Uh, mm-hmm. Yesterday... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yesterday, Disclosed TV posted that Lloyd's List uh, confirmed that Iran had hijacked a tanker named Asphalt Princess, um, mm-hmm. which the Revolutionary Guard immediately denied. But which also prompted commentary. I pulled some commentary from Twitter for you guys. Um, mm-hmm. Exciting. Okay. Act of War Dis Crazy by Plebo Hippo. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and, and that guy's in the, um, that guy's a member of the Joint Chiefs, I, as I understand it, <laughs> yeah, right? That's, that's right. Yeah, that's, that's well, um, when, uh, when Mattis got his account uh, uh, locked for, uh, you know, um, trying to, you know, sell green juice to Q people, uh, he came back as uh, Plebo Hippo. <laughs> And he was like, yo, <laughs> yo, that's, this, that's fucked. Yeah, the Better Bureau, Business Bureau went after him for trying to sell a goat dewormer to. Uh... Um, another great comment. Can we just nuke and nuke is in all caps Iran. Can we just nuke Iran and get it over with by uh, at nuke em, One word. <laughs> OK. I mean, all I can't, right. you well, can't really fault him for that. That's kind of his thing. Yeah. It's called being in character, and then and then some local color for you, Riley. Uh, this oh, is yeah. an Let's, act. Let me have it. Act of war. I call on at Boris Johnson and Her Majesty Elizabeth II <laughs> to do the right thing and declare a state of war between the UK and Iran by Matt with six T's. Yeah, that's right. Well, look, Queen Elizabeth, you need to get off your little patoot. All right. And you need to you need to do like uh, uh, Richard the Second or whatever Richard whatever the Richard was that went on the Crusades. Uh, don't tell me who it was. I'm not interested. Um, uh, whichever that Richard was, you need to do that. We need a warrior old lady, uh, and, and who's going to agree uh, with her? Um, you know, her prime minister, who's the who is you know like a king, the father of many bastard children, and also riddled with gout and sort of many easily preventable communicable diseases, to finally uh, take on a war against uh, uh, this state uh, because uh, this uh, ship was definitely hijacked, hundred percent. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, Seamus, what's the deal with this? <laughs> um, well, this was interesting because uh, the stories that started to stream out of. Um uh, you know, Agence France Press and, um, you know, Disclose TV, uh, Al Arabiya, all these different places that there was a, a Iranian backed forces had seized a tanker. They had hijacked it. It was this massive landing operation. And then, um, there were no photos and there were no videos of it, but we were just supposed to kind of trust that this was happening. Uh, and then the Iranian forces denied it. And of course, you can say, oh, well, of course they deny it. But the issue is, is that last year, um, Iran did seize tankers 
from a variety of different places. And they were very public about it. Um, there was even an incident where they seized one and they had camera crews inside the helicopters as they were dropping down. They made a whole event out of it. So if there are no photos and there are no videos and Iran denies it, and then a couple hours later, you then say that, oh, they actually just left the tanker. Um, I think there are questions that should be raised about whether or not such a seemingly public event uh, even happened. Uh, that's just me, though. Uh, well, it's, for me, right, this raises kind of the same questions that get raised with Havana syndrome, which is like, okay, you're, uh, hear me out here, right? Uh, I'm pretty sure that Havana Syndrome is just, as people listeners to this podcast will know, I'm relatively certain that Havana Syndrome is just uh, American diplomats getting drunk at work and then saying it's the Cubans uh, or the Russians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm wondering... Yeah. It's Havana could Club they... Syndrome is what it is. <laughs> That's right, Dan. Uh, but could this essentially just be an instance of like, the uh, the ship the ship captain took a wrong turn. Didn't want to come to work one day. Uh, got drunk. Got Havana syndrome. Uh, came down with a horrible case of Havana syndrome, and then uh, just was like, ah, the Iranians did it. Just slowly spinning in the Strait of Hormuz. Um, yeah, well, like that's well, you know, spinning in the Strait of Hormuz to raise awareness of COVID. Yes. Yeah. But I, and uh, frontline workers. Well, I was going to ask you, Riley, do you think there's, I mean, this is the second time in uh, two or three months that, that the UK has has done some kind of like maritime shenanigans involving either like accusing people of hijacking a tanker or like uh, going into uh, not international waters, you know, mm. like. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the, 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 the front and, and like sort of mobilizing the uh, the Navy against the French. Uh, it, well, the thing you have to remember about the UK is that it's a phenomenally disorganized place. Uh, most, it's like, look, you think the US is the master of... The only reason the US sinks more, um, you know, uh, carriers and, and frigates and stuff in, um, in, in, in the Indian Ocean is that the US has more to sink. In terms of pure uh, ass-brained incompetence, like per capita, Britain is way higher up, you know. Um, so I, I wouldn't put it past this. Just I, I, look, I don't know. I wouldn't put it past Britain to uh, lie for its own advantage, but I also wouldn't put it past Britain to uh, fuck up constantly and have its chain of command so full of uh, inbred uh, sycophants that uh, nobody is able to get a straight story up through the, um, you know, up to a decision maker. So really, it's it, it's like Britain is sort of covered in the fog of war, but it's uh, <laughs> the fog of a very shallow gene pool uh, among its sort of uh, upper classes and leaders. I'm imagining just ships and radar devices and drones just kind of circling each other with the Benny Hill theme playing at one yeah. at one point five speed. Yes, a hundred percent. So uh, with the UK, you can really never know if it's that or some kind of evil plot. It's usually both. All right. Well, let's let's get on to our let's get on to our main our main topic today. Um, we're talking about the MEK, uh, and you know one of one of my big questions while I was while I was digging into this was why did Stephen Harper, Rudy Giuliani, Mike Pompeo, and John Bolton speak consistently speak on behalf of an organization that started as like a armed leftist student movement with roots in Marxist Leninist thought. Um, and Seamus, can you can you Iran explain the early history of MEK to us? Like, 
how the current leadership emerged, uh, and and how this group transitioned from what seems like a revolutionary movement um, to to now having a compound in Albania. Yeah, yeah, I, I can I can give a, a pretty compact uh, version. Um, starting in the sixties, uh, the MEK came into being. And the thing that immediately separated it from a lot of other leftist movements, which had, you know, a foothold in Iranian opposition to the Shah, but weren't quite, I don't know what the term is, this really wasn't quite there yet. The thing that separated them was that they had an ideology of Islamic Marxism, of Islamic communism, mm-hmm. which put it against groups like Tudeh, uh, you know, Stalinists, Leninists, Maoists, uh, and the like, who were either uh, secularist or anti-theistic uh, or, you know, and or uh, were backed by foreign countries, uh, such as the Soviet Union. Um, the MEK combined the religious faith uh, that many Iranians obviously hold very dear to themselves, uh, and additionally, were not backed by any country in particular at that time. Obviously, that would change. Um, which put them in a very good position to expand and become a pretty major opposition movement within that 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 structure. Um, their leader, uh, Masoud Rajavi, was kind of a, a very, uh, you know, a really perfect example of what a future cult leader could be. Um, he spoke very simply, but he was able to really fire up a crowd and combine the tenets of uh, you know, Islamic theology and socialism into a way that was palatable for a lot of people. Um, in contrast to communist theorists who would focus a lot about, you know, the minutia of uh, intra-party tensions and stuff that mm-hmm. regular Iranian working class people just wouldn't get. Um, and so much has changed. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, it's if you wanted to imagine this, go, going back to sort of uh, Marx's metaphor about, about religion, a lot of them were like, hey, what if we moved beyond religion? And he was like, what if we kept the opiate and you all got to, we all got to keep doing that. You all get a sweet also taste. Got, got the lefty, got the lefty stuff, but also we all got to, um, we all got to chase that dragon. Exactly. And yeah. pass and this this allowed them to grow and eventually when the revolution came and they ran in elections, um, they got a considerable amount of votes. They didn't get any seats in parliament. Um, other mm-hmm. socialist parties were able to to uh, to achieve that. Um, but Masoud Rajavi himself got hundreds of thousands of votes. Um, but because the Islamic Republic eventually, you know, took the reins and cracked down opposition, started finishing off the job that the Shah started, uh, they were, you know, disintegrated. They fell out of uh, any sort of grace that they had. Um, they managed to secure the, uh, well, well, the first Iranian president, who was himself an Islamic socialist, uh, was forced to flee. Um, alongside the MEK, and the plan was initially that they would regroup in a different country, and they would utilize this to, you know, um, further an opposition to the Islamic Republic. But the first Iranian president uh, eventually left the organization a couple of years later, or even a year later, I think, because mm-hmm. it became very obvious that Rajavi was not interested in any sort of leftist opposition. Um, right. He was interested in creating a cult, and. Um, 
from and that so point, much has changed <laughs> and, and, and and from that point um they teamed up with saddam hussein yeah. and you know i would say big 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 problem when they are fighting against the iranian uh, state and are bombing iranian civilians with chemical weapons and uh, conventional weapons which are killing so many civilians um they eventually invade the country alongside the Iraqi army under Saddam, um, and they are routed this after is, making a. Yeah. This is uh, Operation Mersad, right? Yes, Operation so- Mersad. Um, what happened was is that they made a pincer move toward the uh, the center of the country. They got in uh, somewhat far, uh, and then the Iranian army, you know, just destroyed them. And on the heels of that destruction, the Iraqi army, um, as you know, revenge for that loss launched chemical weapons um, into Iran. Um, so obviously, the MEK is not well looked upon. I would say, uh, I, I think Matt Duss, who is Bernie Sanders' foreign policy advisor, um, described them as having the popularity of Salmonella. Um, <laughs> there is all like the monarchist movement inside Iran to reestablish the Shah. Um, it, it's absolutely not as popular as American government officials would like to tell you. Um, but I would definitely say that it is more popular than the MEK, um, which has no ability to, you know, operate with any sort of openness. Um, every single time there is an MEK rally, there is a hashtag that trends about how much inside Iran about how much people hate uh, Maryam Rajavi, who is the current leader. Um, yeah. yeah, because they, uh, yeah. Masoud, Masoud Rajavi is 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 killed, right? Like. Well, uh, that's an interesting <laughs> topic of discussion. I, I mean, I um, was just, uh, I was just doing, in my research. I was like trying to track where they lost support, and it seems like in in the early '80s they um, fomented like uh, mass protests against uh, against uh, the Ayatollah, and the Revolutionary Guard just murked them in their compounds. Uh, they killed uh, Rajavi's second in command and his first wife, Ashraf. Who, yeah. is, who I'm assuming these bases are like named after, right? Yes, yes, they are. She's a martyr, and yeah, yeah. And and then of course Masood then took the uh, the wife of another member. Um, <laughs> classic, he, he classic cult that. move, man. Classic cult move. And I I, I I should establish that during this transition to a cult, they basically jettisoned like the way that they lost support was that not only did they start a bombing campaign um, inside Iran that killed a lot of people. Um, they then jettisoned their ideology of Islamic Marxism and became entirely directionless. Uh, Came centrist like the Labor Party. It's like <laughs> that's it's not totally inaccurate. That's what voters want. <laughs> they, they what what happened was is that in a lot of the speeches that you see from Rajavi from before, he takes the time to make it very clear that this is a leftist movement. But if you look at any of the speeches that Mariam does mm-hmm. um, currently, there is no identifiable ideology outside of, you know, vague uh, platitudes about democracy and human rights. You know, but right. any schmuck can talk about that. Um, but it's meant to be palatable to, you know, every variety of liberal or conservative who wants to back them. Because once you start talking about Marx and, mm-hmm. um, you know, other figures of that nature, people start to ask questions. That's right. Um, well, it's kind of like Riley said, like, you know, you've got you've got a little bit of the Marxism, but you also chase the dragon. And at a single point, at a certain point, you're going to be like, hey, 
you know, Chasing the Dragon is really fucking good. It, yeah. It's so sweet. <laughs> and, I love and it. Let's get about, let's yeah. just yeah. get rid of this Mark stuff. Like Yeah, let's get rid of this Mark stuff because then we'll be able to get, you know, like uh, a bunch of guys associated with like George Mason University to just basically pay for all our stuff. And and about about the chasing the dragon thing in particular, um, the MEK has really since I think two thousand three, which I think is what you're talking about, Dan. They've really started to go off into this direction of just complete nonsense. In that Masud Rajavi was almost certainly killed in two thousand three during the invasion of Iraq. Um, after that point, the MEK was disarmed by the United States. Um, they have agents inside of Iran that are able to commit violence, um, who are trained, funded by Israel. Um, but their actual military wing that they used to, you know, invade Iran with, that's no longer there. Um, but Rajavi during that process was almost certainly killed, but the MEK chose not to acknowledge this. Huh. Um, and hmm. they claim that he's in hiding, but he's still alive and he still puts out statements. He put out a statement like a couple days ago, technically, about the, the recent protests in um, in Iran about water shortages. Uh, but strangely enough, none of these statements come with video uh, or an appearance or any sort of audio. Do any of um, them mar- uh, mention uh, Marxism? Uh, well, I mean, you, you want to take a guess? Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's it, it's very very clear that and, and additionally um, a couple of years ago the Saudi information minister um, came out on stage at one of the rallies and said talked about the late Masoud Rajavi um, Ooh, and uh-oh. a couple times and the MEK had to release a statement saying to like no no he's still alive we can't show him to you he's <laughs> just shy fake yeah. news the man yeah, who would like- constantly get out in front of a camera to do speeches to do everything suddenly he's huh. he's not feeling it. He's just very, he's feeling very Sundere recently. <laughs> I've, I'm kind of interested in this, this transitional period of 2002 to 2004 for the MEK, because it seems like a, it seems like a period of like total reinvention for them. I mean, by necessity, because like, like you said, the U S invaded Iraq, but in two, but prior to that in 2002, they became like the major source for claims about Iran's nuclear program. So you could kind of see them moving in the direction that, that they've gone in already. Um, I dug up a cursed document, which is uh, which is a Rand white paper. Ooh, okay. Yeah. So so in 2004, MEK becomes uh, protected persons under under Article Four of the Geneva Convention, and and the way this happens is like kind of an interesting preview into how neocons would deal with them going forward and liberals to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Um, the white paper is called, it's pretty telling, MEK in Iraq, a policy conundrum. <laughs> okay. Is that right? So, so yeah. Technically true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to, I'm going to read, uh, I'm going to read a chunk from this uh, to sort of contextualize um, what was happening at the time. Um, so this is from the paper in June of 2004, without tribunal review, U.S. Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld determined the legal status of the MEK. Instead of prisoners of war, he designated MEK members as civilian, quote, protected persons under the Fourth Geneva Convention. Because MEK members would have likely qualified as combatants, this presumed that they had not engaged coalition forces in battle. Moreover, he applied the designation to the entire group, 
denying tribunal review for each individual. His decision controverted DOS, International Committee of Red Cross, and the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees' recommendations. It has proven extremely controversial because it appears that the United States selectively chose to apply Geneva Conventions to a designated terrorist organization and further grant it special status. So, so you could tell from like the Rand document that they're not they're not super happy about Rumsfeld sort of uh, pulling a heavy and just declaring all of these people, um, you know, uh, protected persons. And it's mm-hmm. it's interesting. Wait, wait, so what we're sa- when we say protected persons, we mean what 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 is, do we mean like that they would have the same sort of designation as people who are say like refugees fleeing persecution or what have you? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um. Mm-hmm. But it's it's really interesting because like in 2009 this status lapses and and the MEK becomes a huge problem for Iraq um, and then making it even worse there's there's the matter of like determining who actually is in the MEK and who is leadership you know and how they got there so from the Rand document this is kind of where the cult like environment starts to creep in the the white paper talks about. Uh, captured iranian soldiers promised repatriation if they join mek um it talks about central authorities at the mek holding or destroying identity documents and it's it also talks about people enticed to camps after being promised visits with family family members and members being threatened with uh exposure to iraqi authorities for illegal immigration so so this creates this impossible situation like of basically figuring out who is in leadership and and who is captive from this group no i mean the there's that and there's this real element of how they get their funding which is which has gone through similar ways um for one thing they get their funding from from israel um which is something that u.s officials themselves have established um but additionally you know families have attested to the fact that there's a common strategy of MEK members, you know, calling up their families and claiming that, you know, I've left the organization. I want to start a new life. I want to become a lawyer. I want to become this. I want to become that. Um, you need to give me some money to so that I can I can start a new life. And so they send them, you know, basically all of their money so that they can help, you know, their their sons, their daughters, um, and then they just take all that money back to the organization, you know people's entire savings that they, they had their entire life just, you know, run them dry. And then they give that back to the MEK and that allows them to further uh, their operations where government funding and, and government uh, complacency doesn't allow them to. I mean, it's, it's it's a slight sort of tangent, but I think it's it's almost worth asking, right? Where I, I, we have a good idea of if we have a good idea, I think, of how people get involved in sort of cults and cult-like organizations, right? We've even spoken about it on this on this show before. Is it pretty much the sort of standard story for ME, for an, for someone in someone's relationship with the MEK where they just are like, okay, well, I'm kind of aimless and directionless. Here are some people who are sort of promising me a sort of social life and structure. So I'm going to involve myself in it and then become very resistant to anything from outside of it. Is it something like that, or is it like a family thing? Like, how does this usually happen? <laughs> that's that's the thing. Um, there is something to be said about the cult-like aspects of the MEK because I truly don't know what it offers anybody. Um, because yeah. traditionally, cults—I I don't want to say traditionally, but stereotypically—the thing that attracts people to cults is um, 
you know, maybe a promise of friendship, uh, a promise of, as you said, a social structure um, that gives you a certain amount of stability. Um, if you feel it, uh, maybe in a different direction, maybe you want sex out of it. Um, the free love aspect of it. If you're talking about something like seventies, new age stuff. Yeah. Um, the issue here is that, uh, MEK members uh, are not allowed to be friends with one another. Um, they're not allowed to have sex. They're not allowed to be in romantic relationships with one another. Um, mm -hmm. they're not allowed to do anything. Uh, everything is supposed to be dedicated toward the revolution. And, um, to what degree that is that is being performed anymore is also pretty dubious because there is no more armed wing. Um, there is no there's there's the hope that you put out that you know eventually you'll be installed in Iran and become the new government. Um, but all you kind of do right now is post. And yeah, right. um, yeah I, I I struggle to because I mean like like Heaven's Gate like you know nobody had sex there and no and like but like there was still like friendship there mm -hmm. in the you don't even have that which i don't know it it, it stuns me it doesn't I, even I, seem to be offering like a coherent philosophy you know like i, I mean i could yeah that's also the thing i could like, understand a cult like joining a cult that that didn't have that social relationship you know where you were just working towards the ideology but the ideology here at this point seems so entirely hollowed out and like devoid of anything like it's so vague it's like we are going to usurp the government and we're not going to do it ourselves because we're not armed we're going to do it with the help of the united states who you know like i'm not i'm just not sure what the appeal is <laughs> exactly i mean the the idea is is behind like as you said like uh, a, a cult typically has like a very specific ideology or if it's a religion like there's a lot of intricacies to it that's what makes it kind of appealing and interesting um you know there may have been something to be said about like scientology if it was similar to that wherein it seems normal on the surface but when you get like into like the nitty-gritty then you get to the stuff about xenu and the trillions of years ago and the thetans and all this um mm -hmm. but there really is nothing below this uh, it's a political cult um yeah. you know what you see is what you get I mean, and, I mean, at least Scientology if, has the uh, has the benefit of you know if you're if you fucked up and you're you're scrubbing floors on the Sea Org ship because you you made a mistake with your e meter at least you can fall back on uh, well I'm improving myself I'm clearing my thetons you know? exactly I mean you get the promise maybe you'll get to like do mind you know reading and stuff like that maybe in the future that's that's neat that's neat in the MEK you know there really isn't that kind of structure. Um, I, 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 yeah, it's, it's a, it's an apolitical political organization. Complete sort of, nonsense. It exists, it, it exists as a kind of vessel for the State Department to kind of just, I mean, you can see why sort of why Rumsfeld chooses to like try to apply a legal designation of protection to it because then they can basically just declare they have, they have like a completely sort of formless entity. That they can kind of declare anyone a part of mm -hmm. that that and then that confers them sort of rights and responsibilities as sort of with regards to protected persons um, that then just achieves a geopolitical end for them. And I guess if you think about what the MEK guys get out of it is uh, posting and also the sort of the feeling that at some point, you know, um, the revolution is going because like most people in politics, especially revolutionary politics, are people for whom life is not really working out very well. 
generally speaking. Because if it was working out pretty well, I don't know, you'd be going to restaurants, you'd be you know, driving around, you'd be having dinner parties or whatever, because you wouldn't be thinking about politics. You wouldn't be thinking about the rules of the game. You only think about the rules of the game if you're trying to win it and haven't. <laughs> um, and, and so what they're sort of waiting for is, ah, the US will come and we will be... Uh, I think it's almost, you can see it as millenarian. Right, yeah, it's like the U.S. Yeah, will yeah. swoop in, and then we will be. No, but due. but even but even with yeah. the millenniarian thing, like within millenniarian faiths and cults, there's still interesting stuff that you get to do before then. Yeah, here it's <laughs> again like there are there. I mean, I'm not even kidding about the posting thing. There are facilities inside of the Ashraf Three compound in Albania where there are just rows of computers, and they post in front of them. Like there are photos of this. That's that is all that they do. <laughs> Professional posters. Professional um, yeah. posters. Let's, and let's, it's not even the fun kind that you do with your friends online. Like uh, it's very boring. I've seen it. <laughs> you just type out the same things over and over again. Well, let's let's mm-hmm. talk about the about the Ashraf uh, three base and how and how they got to Albania. It's like it's a from what I could tell in tw- in 2016, the last 280 MEK members. At the Ashraf base in Iraq, or maybe they weren't at the. Seamus, maybe you could clarify this. Were they at the Ashraf One base in Iraq, or were they, had they been moved to like Camp Liberty? Uh, well, they were initially at uh, Camp Ashraf, um, okay. and then they moved to uh, Camp Liberty, which I think was called obviously something else before then. Right. Um, but then that became untenable because it was like 2013, um, and then the U.S. said, "Hey." There's a, this crazy country out there. Uh, it's called Albania. Oh God! Do you want Do you want to move to there? We're Albania, um, and 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 obviously, like the MEK initially was was about you know hesitant about it because Iraq was right next to Iran. Obviously, the location was better. If you're planning to eventually uh, take over Iran and, and supposedly liberate it, you want to be there. Um, but eventually, they did accept, and um, curiously. Uh, the U.S. then donated a lot of money uh, to help them resettle as refugees. And uh, I want to say a couple thousand uh, are there right now. Um, and I, I, Dan, you had been talking to me about how uh, the MEK's location yeah. inside of Albania has been pretty disruptive. Could, could you expand on that a little bit? I'm interested. Yeah. So I've... Um you know, I've I've spent a lot of time in in Macedonia and in the south part of Balkans, ex Yugoslavia. I've, I've traveled back and forth uh, in a van on tour between, like, crossing border between uh, Macedonia into Kosovo, into Albania, into Montenegro, and that is a place where you know the fallout from uh, the end of the Yugoslav civil war with Kosovo uh, has like that has not settled down yet. Like a lot of those borders are still porous. Um, There's a lot of, uh, it's a huge smuggling route between Kosovo and Albania. And there's a lot of interethnic tension because, uh, you know, politics for these small, smaller countries, especially countries like Macedonia come down to like demographics and a lot of outside pressure. So having MEK outside of Tirana, um, you like ferrying members and supplies back and forth through these borders, acting with kind of impunity um, and being protected by the Albanian government um, is, is a pretty corrosive element, right? You've got demobilized Iraq war veterans. You've got, uh, you've got people who are 
you know, sort of acting as a, a country within a country that already has kind of a tenuous grasp on democracy or whatever, you know, order. <laughs> so it's not great. Yeah. The, the, the interesting thing is, is that the MEK has been disarmed officially, but once you get into the compound, I mean, it's this very ornate thing. They have, you know, the gates that you can't enter through, but once you get through them, there are honor guard, quote unquote, waiting for you. They're all dressed up in uniforms, mm-hmm. uh, these, these archways. And it really is like you're stepping into someone's territory, this extraterritorial thing that exists within Albania. Um, and it's a very, like every video that I see of it, it, it seems to get larger and larger. Um, it, it, it's, it's an amazing thing to witness that they have constructed this gigantic complex out in the middle of, um, the Albanian countryside. Yeah. I and, guess, I guess that's, yeah. that's a, that's a more succinct way of saying what I was trying to say is that setting up, uh, an extra territorial, um, sort of, disconnected government within a country that has just gotten itself extricated from like being involved in a civil war is bad it's not good yeah yeah <laughs> like anyone would tell you that based on the description that you just gave me like i don't know maybe, maybe we could have found like a different country here or maybe we just didn't have to resettle them at all you know it, it's just it's it doesn't seem uh, a great idea it doesn't surprise me that America chose Albania because I feel like, you know, that that is a country that is sort of not at the forefront of most people's minds. And uh, it seems like an easy country for American government to be able to push around. You know, Albania has been not unlike, you know, Macedonia or some of the other countries like or, or Kosovo has been, you know, promised ascension to the European Union uh is is really hoping for that and and i think that's a classic american strategy in the south balkans is to basically force these things on countries and use uh you know membership to these international organizations or economic spheres as a as a kind of a carrot and a stick you know so yeah let's let's talk about these rallies in uh at ashraf 3 yeah um they are really surreal I, I cannot understate that description, but I also cannot think of really any other adjectives to describe it. Um, these things are oftentimes seven to nine hours long, and they feature politicians from just all around the world who most of them are no longer in office. Just like a Hassan Piker stream. Oh, my God. Uh <laughs> What what essentially they do is that they, they pay a lot of money to these politicians. And sometimes, most of the time, it's, you know, complete nobodies. Uh, mm-hmm. People who have not been in office for many years or they're in opposition in governments uh, that are, are basically nobodies. Um, but sometimes they get bigger names and they use this to advertise themselves. Um, uh, you know, people like, uh, for example, Rudy Giuliani. Uh, uh, Dana Rohrabacher. Um. Yeah, I, I just want to, <laughs> as an aside, so Rohrabacher uh, on one of his trips to uh, to Ashraf Three made a brief stop on Albanian television just to just to shoot the shit and just casually mentioned uh, the idea of Greater Albania being a good thing, and then 
walked out of the television studio. <laughs> it's, 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 be, it's because it's because Dana Rohrbacher is like just surrounded by like by like a pig pen cloud. He's just a filthy, filthy man. Oh, and he of course he walks. He will be like, yeah. Anyway, let's let's talk about Greater Albania. That stretch a uh, Greater Albania stretching from Tehran to uh, you know Newcastle. Yeah, we- and, and just be like, anyway, I'm gonna go wipe. I'm just gonna like you know uh, go wipe my my dirty ass on this. Like he never gets up without leaving a stain. Which is like, uh, it's just oh. like the last fucking thing you want to say on Albanian television while you're visiting the Balkans. It's like, yeah, Greater Albania, great idea. Go for it, guys. Because the then, Rohrbacher. because then, like the, the, the you know the Albanian like Dewey uh, uh, ministers in Macedonia are like, well, listen to American politician Dana Rohrbacher. He's clearly saying that Macedonia is Albania. So uh, case closed, yeah. everyone. <laughs> Great job, Dana. Rohrbacher. I love Rohrbacher because I think he's he may be the only pro ISIS American politician <laughs> to ever exist. I'm I'm like. He he's. I remember he said when there was an ISIS attack in Tehran, uh, he said like, "Isn't it a good thing to have the United States like backing up Sunnis who will uh, attack, uh, you know, the the Shiite threat?" And I think he didn't know what actually happened. Like, oh, no, it's, he, so, it's he, so cool that that America has like. Um uh, you, you, what you could, I guess, like um, a sort of a sort of middle-aged Orange County swinger, just be like sort of <laughs> talking about like you know, backing ISIS. He's the dark. Awesome. He's the dark. The, Lebowski. He is so funny. The dark Lebowski. <laughs> he's like, oh he's, my god, he's like the anti-big Lebowski. No, but he he did Dana Roar, like Dana Roar, but <laughs> Giuliani and there's Giuliani who obviously also says like insane things. This is Rohrbacher. There's Joe Lieberman. Um, and then they got, you know, big ones like Newt Gingrich, John McCain. Um, they, uh, I don't think Nancy Pelosi has ever spoken there, but she has sent her support before. That's right. Um, yeah. uh, Ted Cruz, Mike Pompeo, uh, Cory Booker. Yeah, oh, Cory um, Cory Booker did is, that last, did that this year. Actually. Yeah, it's by Zoom. I watched his, um, I watched his speech and it yeah. is completely unhinged. Uh, uh. Jo- John Bolton as well, obviously. Oh, oh yeah. John Bolton loves the MEK too. I mean, there are just so many here that are really I recurring mean, just, guests. It's 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 because I think they love it because it's so blank, because mm. they can just project. America can just pre, and especially like you know America's um, matter politicians can just sort of project what they want onto it. Mm-hmm. Right. That's and, why and someone that is, like Stephen Harper and, loves it as well because Stephen Harper is a guy who's like whose main thing was just kind of asking what the oil industry wants or like what sort of the like national post would sort of, you know, write approvingly about. So you don't, if you don't have any sort of connection with wanting to do with what with, if your mission in, in politics is basically just to like do under to understand the job that you're doing and then do it for the people who've commissioned you to do it like Harper. And then of course you love the MEK because they're a completely blank canvas. You just project whatever you want onto them. Exactly. Right. And that is also the strategy that they that they want. I mean, they they go through a lot of front organizations um, in order to project two things, I think. One, that there's a lot of different organizations under the banner of the, the National Council of Resistance, which is the technical umbrella organization of the MEK, but essentially it's just them. Um, and additionally, it's to put a certain amount of separation between uh, themselves and uh, the MEK banner. Because if you're in Congress, you know, you may have heard the MEK in passing, 
as perhaps a designated terrorist organization. And you know to stay away from that. But if mm-hmm. someone from the organization of Iranian American communities comes up to you and says, hey, we'd like you to make a speech about uh, the regime in Iran, you know, of course, you support the Iranian American community. You know, are you going to pass this up? Um, and that's how, you know, Hakeem Jeffries gets to speak there. That's how that's how John Lewis speaks yeah. at some of these events. Um, and they're like delisted from that uh, terror. Yeah, they got delisted. Like in uh, 2012, both in the United States and in Canada, pretty much simultaneously with the backing of the same cadre of like international community. Exactly. And the, the point is, is that the terrorist designation, you know, it's, it's kind of a bit of an obstacle if the MBK is by far the most in line with your own sensibilities opposition group that could take over Iran. You know, the royalists, you know, they may have been the previous uh, government that was in power in Iran, um, you know, but they're chaotic masses. They don't have, you know, any one party behind them, but the MBK, they're all behind one leader. They're very organized. Uh, they ha- Look, I mean, they have all these organizations behind them. They have a compound. They, they have a compound. They are ready <laughs> to take over in Iran on day one. That's right. They're a government in waiting, some say. Government in exile. That's exactly how they how they position themselves. Yes. And this and, is something, I mean, we could get into this in, you know, further discussions about MEK specific uh effects and operations in Canada. But this is something that I, I, I was really interested in reading all these accounts is that um, like un, like a lot of government in exiles, uh, you know, they they have this outsized um, outsized influence on foreign policy, both in the United States and Canada. But unlike a lot of, you know, self-reported government in exiles, they're deeply unpopular with the Iranian community here. They are not like the sort of Bandera cult of the Ukrainians who who speak for the Ukrainians here and are, you know, popular and have effect on foreign policy. They have effect on foreign policy and they're deeply unliked. Yeah, the 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 big issue with talking about Iranian diaspora opinions um, is that the Iranian diaspora has a lot of opinions. And while certainly, you know, a local MEK supporter represents a facet of that, it does not represent all facets of it. And, but there is a tendency, and this applies to royalist supporters as well, because they have their own organizations, because they have their own representatives that are willing to talk to you. Um, there is a tendency among the news media, both in the United States and in Canada, to contract these people to speak to you um, because they always have something they have to say. Uh, they have a very clear and consistent line that they can put out. And also, it's against the Iranian government. So, you know, those are all pretty good points in your favor uh, if you're looking for a, a good story in that respect yeah yeah mm-hmm. i want to i want to talk a little bit as we as we cruise into the end here um about specifically like canadians that have supported and and physically gone to that ashraf 3 compound um so you know and some of them are are friends of the show so uh video and documents show that Current par- parliamentarians have attended MEK functions or given speeches. These include conservative Senator Linda Frum. Oh, how's yes. she doing? Well, she got a little trip out of the, she got she got to go visit the MEK. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, because like they're so sort of, um, you know, uh, standing, uh, uh, you know, force a uh, four square against, you know, um, 
instability. Ter- they want a rules-based global order, right? And that's why sort of the, they all stood up against Donald Trump too. That's right. All the all those all, all the sort of you know the centrist, your your from family and so on. So of course, like they're gonna. They want to go see again the um th- those paragons of a rules based <laughs> rationalist international order, the fucking MEK, yes. in their um in their summer house outside Tirana. Yes. So we got we got from we've got uh, conservative MP Michael Cooper, uh, conservative MP Candace Bergen, no relation, uh, mm-hmm. liberal MP oh, Judy Scro, uh, liberal Judy Scro, yeah, no, <laughs> <laughs> liberal MP Michael Levitt. Um, and Harper, of course. We also have John Baird, yeah, uh, Attorney General Irwin Kotler, and David Kilgore, former public prosecutor and MP. So in 2017, Frum and Kotler were photographed together at an event organized by uh, something called Canadian Friends of a Democratic Iran, which is uh, like an MEK front organization. Um from and Kotler categorically denied any affiliation or support with the M- or support for the MEK. Um, from delivered a speech, which was published on her website, in which she appears to call uh, Golistana, who is who is like the MEK representative in Canada, and other traveling delegations, quote, true heroes. Um, mm. This is interesting, though. So. The national. Oh, by the way, if you wanted, to, in terms of just in terms of Canadians who've been associated with the like Canadian parliamentarians who've been associated uh, with this uh, certain uh, compound, um, if we wanted to get the uh, the if we wanted to do like a Kevin Bacon six degrees of separation between um, uh, sort of the MEK and some of our friends in Ukraine, <laughs> is the main lobbyist to get the MEK delisted as a ter- terrorist organization in Canada and also shut down the Iranian embassy in Canada also has been banned by President uh, Putin from going to Russia uh, for, quote, standing up for Ukraine. So uh, all of the same sociopaths love both of these organizations. If you're a Banderite or an MEK guy, there will be a Canadian parliamentarian who wants to make sure that you get, you know, you get your day in the sun. Yeah, yeah. And that's James, Be- James Bizan. Yeah, and that's, that's kind of the point here. So, like, you know, uh, the National Observer questioned from about about her support for MEK and she wrote back uh via email she said I am not affiliated with any lobby group I believe that it is important to remain independent I have never attended events in support of MEK she added do I support uh Iranian regime change yes do I support (laughs) or endorse the MEK or any specific opposition party or group no I have never expressed support for anything other than freedom and human rights in Iran. When asked to explain photographic evidence of her endorsement of Golistana, Frum said, the event you are questioning was not in support of MEK. In a separate email, she wrote, are you a journalist or an Iranian regime activist? Oh, come on. <laughs> ba- awesome. Out. Based on your line of questioning, your unwillingness to take repeated clarifications at face value, I presume it is the regime that is shaping your views. Oh, my God. She, she also, like, just, at the, just to wrap this part of it up, like, she also has interacted on Twitter a lot with, with that uh, Twitter account, Heshmat, Heshmat uh. Talavi. Um, and, and like retweeted it, uh, 
so basically like she uh, the observer asked her why she followed mek identified accounts and for comment on the intercepts findings uh because the intercept did a did a deep dive into this from responded engaging on social media is not the same as endorsing <laughs> retweets do not equal endorsement <laughs> <laughs> views not that of the canadian senate yeah. So the, I, yeah. So there it is. There's there's Linda yeah. from bobbing and weaving. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. You could never you could never stick one there. Sorry. Sorry, journalist or dare or Ayatollah, perhaps. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, man. Just the the. I think the, the you the one thing. I mean, again, it's not important, but it's important. I guess it's important to remember just the absolute just dreary anti intellectualism of just being like. Uh, the groups that and again you know you're lying right but like all oh, the groups different names so you must be a regime activist mm-hmm. like it's just the the whole point of like conservative politics seems to be at least when like challenged in in some kind of you know argument or in challenged in the media or when challenged by the press any way they're challenged is to then just be really loudly stupid until the challenge goes away that's right. It's just be like, oh, sorry, I'm too dumb to argue. I'm too dumb to argue. I'm too <laughs> dumb to argue. And then eventually people ignore you and you can go back to, you know, um, um, to putting your agenda into, into uh, uh, you know, uh, um, um, practice. Yes. Right. But it's, it's, it's very, very annoying, I suppose. <laughs> yes. So, you know, this, this all kind of leads to the question, like, why? Why do these people keep doing this? And we've, you know, we've, I think we've covered a couple, a couple possible reasons you know the the most obvious one being you know what we've laid out here which is that mek is kind of a perfect vessel for um for foreign policy on iran for regime change they mm-hmm. they don't really have their own ideology beyond regime change which which is <laughs> which is perfect <laughs> it's perfect because it's totally right. it's totally in line with the neocons it's just like yeah, what it's do we re- it's what do we do you know it's the well little- just like the neocons they were also all sort of disillusioned ex-trotskyists who just like or ex-ex-socialists anyway who just sort of maintained a kind of devotion to changing regimes just evolution just revolution rather for its own sake, wherever, with by whatever means, and what happens afterwards with, with zero is truly none of it. our business. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you have <laughs> slave markets in Tripoli. Oh well, better luck well, next time. At least time. we changed the regime. Yeah. Thank goodness. Um, but anyway, but time to anyway back to my lunch. But Seamus, Seamus, and I were watching uh, the, the 2019 video of Harper's speech at at the compound, and at about three minutes and twenty seconds. We, we kind of realized there's another thing working here. Because um, at three minutes and 20 seconds into the video, the crowd goes fucking crazy. They're clapping, they're cheering, they're hooting. Harper is beaming. And, and this is a big piece of the puzzle when trying to make sense of this support and why these people keep going back. It's not just that MEK's vision is expedient to these ghouls' foreign policy aims. It is that they cannot get this type of heat at home. They never have... And they never will. Like, nothing is going to give you the fucking juice like the coordinated hooting and adoration of a cult. Exactly. This is the Ashraf 3 compound is a beautiful, beautiful place if you are a neoconservative. It is by far the only place in the world where you will receive undying adoration no matter what scandal you have at home, no matter what crime you are accused of. You are welcome there. Um, this is the only place in the world where Alan Dershowitz 
a man who has been scorned by the people of Martha's Vineyard, who can no longer enter a restaurant without being, you know, given given a bad look. He can go to Ashraf 3, and his face can be plastered upon gigantic screens, and applause given to him from every corner of a gigantic auditorium. And he knows that he can always come back next year and get the same amount of fervor. Um, mm. it, it, why wouldn't you go if you have no... Uh, morals at all this is this is the place where you can get you know your batteries refueled that's right if you yourself are an empty vessel in a in a in a ghoul shaped container waiting to be filled by just clapping and hooting then this is the place for you yeah it's uh you know you're certainly not getting it in because you know that you're like you know that your position in canada is like electorally kind of sewn up just by the various sort of uh, tendrils of the Laurentian consensus as they sort of extend into like our various elements of our media and politics by our, you know, um, a two party system, whatever. Uh, and, you know, for as long as that's happened, but like everybody fucking hates you. <laughs> and like that's like the deal if you're going to be a neoconservative politician is you're going to hold on to power in a democracy despite being sort of uh, viscerally hated by everyone because you're clearly a walking corpse. But this is the one place where that's good. Yes, yes. This is like late period scorpions going to play in like, uh, maybe this is a bad example, but I've, but like late period scorpions going to play in like Latvia after the wall came down, you know? <laughs> no, this, this is like a, this is like Lim, Lim Biscuit at Lollapalooza. Like, yeah. they're, they're going, they, they know where they need to go. And neoconservatives, it's the countryside of Albania. Right, that's that's like every every year they just get they get excited for it like kids going to camp like the one place where they're gonna get actually cheered. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, that's it. I think you know. I think between the three of us, we've uh, we've solved this mystery of uh, why do these people keep going to Albania every year? <laughs> <laughs> I thought it, I thought Stephen Harper just uh, you know, really enjoys uh, Tirana. Yeah, he likes uh, Hosha's brutalist architecture. Gorgeous city. Mm-hmm. This is a big fan. It is a gorgeous city. It is. <laughs> um, we would never Seamus, lie to anyone here. Seamus, thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us and, and digging into this uh, with us. Oh, it was my pleasure. Um, and I want to wish you an excellent move to Paris. Oh, thank you. So thank you for uh, listening to this week's free episode of The Bottleman. Um, if you would like to know more, if you'd like to dive deeper, uh, we have a Patreon. It is seven Canadian dollars a month. Um, you get bonus content. You get uh, you just get more stuff. It's great. Mm. It's fantastic. We love it. It's getting bigger all the yeah. time. You um, get to hear us talking to our uh, various sort of friends from the UK and uh, US about corner gas. That's right. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. It's mostly corner yeah. gas content. Look, there's a lot um, of corner gas on there. But sometimes you can also hear us talk about uh, Dan's investigations of the victims of communism memorial, uh, which has less to do with Brent Butt. That's true. <laughs> uh, thank you all very much. And uh, see you later. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye.